Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. My name is Jesse Vondracek, and I'm here with Marilyn. Hey, guys. What's up? And Elliot. Hey, Jesse. How you doing? Hey, Marilyn. I'm doing good, thanks. <laughs> and uh, like I said, this is the 99% where we uh, talk about triathloning and answer some questions that some listeners have about triathlon. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a follow on your app of choice and like a like and a rating. That'd be awesome. And I think the best thing to do would be to tell your friends about us. And a high rating, not a low rating. If you want <laughs> to give us is. a low rating, don't do it. Just, <laughs> just don't do it. We'd rather you just give us a high rating. If you do give us a low rating, please give us a comment to tell us what we can do better to kind of get that rating up. So positive. <laughs> gotta try. Gotta try. Um, so we have a listener question, which we're going to start with today. Uh, someone asked about making the jump from racing age group to racing professional or elite, whatever you kind of want to call that next category. And we've all, I guess, worked with people and, and I guess Marilyn and I have some experience ourselves going from like bridging that gap. So for starters, I'm going to throw the ball to Marilyn to have her kind of talk about her journey as she spent a little bit of time racing age group before she spent a lot longer time racing professionally. Yeah. I'll keep mine really short. Uh, the, that, that bridge was a different journey for me. Mine was uh, a mindset. I, I had said, I want to race the front of the field. And in order to race the front of the field, I need to get out there and do it. So I just, um, I did have a, a few years where I started the sport in 99 and I didn't do my first pro race until the end of 2003, um, beginning of 2004. But um, mostly it was just a decision. I thought if I want to race those people, that's, that's the race I've got to be in and just see where I stack up and keep working until I get good enough to actually be competitive in it. So I kind of skipped a lot of the like progression steps and development steps and all of that. I just decided that that was the, um, that was the race I wanted to be in and went out there and did the required things to, to be able to do that. And then just went out, raced it, saw where I stacked up and kept going from there. So I promised to keep mine brief. So that's the, that's the general blanket of it. Awesome. Thanks. Um, we'll save Elliot for last. If, if that works, um, just cause my story is going to be somewhat similar and, uh, and short. Um, yeah, I started racing age group and was kind of there for completion and was doing like, I guess what you would call a lot of like longer, slow distance training. And then I started training with people and we started training way harder than I was training before. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is different. This is harder. Um, but then I started getting a little bit faster and then I started getting a little more competitive in my head and like, kind of like Maryland's like, Oh, I can actually kind of like race this. And it's not just like to get to the finish line as like the goal. It's like, I'm trying to get there fast now. And, um, and yeah, I started hanging out with some guys who had the pro card and, and I was like, Oh, that looks cool. Maybe, maybe I could do that. So yeah, I spent some time working with, uh, people that were, like kind of getting faster and showing me the ropes on, on how to kind of make that jump as far as like, not only what I need to do in each sport, but kind of like how to, how to train appropriately. Um, also started working with Elliot in order, in order to help like make, make those jumps. 
and then, yeah, it just kind of got a little bit more competitive in how I was racing and, and kind of went after it and, um, got a little bit more aggressive and now it's probably become a, a downfall because I've gotten a little <laughs> too aggressive, but, um, but yeah, I had to learn how to do that. And, uh, and yeah, that kind of happened in that, in that time period. Um, so yeah, that's how I kind of made that jump. And Elliot is going to talk a little bit more about like his experience coaching athletes over that gap, but yeah, I, I, I've coached, I think it's 25 people from amateur to pro, um, give or take anyways. Um, you guys kind of represent both sides of the coin and Marilyn. So I've, I've obviously I've coached people who are like both, both of you and, and the, what Marilyn was talking about and she didn't quite say it is she was training like what she wanted to be from the get go. Is that fair to say Marilyn? Yeah. Once I made that decision. Yep. Yeah. You mm -hmm. said, you said, I'm going to do this sport. I'm going to do it. Well, who are the best people? What do they do? That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Exactly. No questions about it. And that's, what's like, like probably one of the more admirable things about you as a person. I mean, I don't know you that well, but like, that's what you do really well. And I think if you're like going to take anything away from, from all of our podcasts, like that's like your mentality of like, this is how you do something well. And sure, you might make 20 mistakes along the way, but it's kind of the intent and it's the ambition and it's getting out the door every day and really just saying, this is what I do. And that's that. And it's end of question and there are no questions. And then the Jesse side of it is, <laughs> sorry, Jesse, you're not the bad side. You're just the different side because um, you got there too. But I remember like, I started working with Jesse when he already had started to kind of change the mindset, but it wasn't quite there all the way. And Jesse's mindset is 100% there and has been there for over a decade. But I remember when he was doing the first race he could qualify for his pro card at, he was thinking that was going to be a prep race for another prep race for then for the race where maybe he'd qualify. And I remember thinking like, well, he's doing all the work. He just doesn't know it yet. And that part of that was who he was hanging out with. He was hanging out with other people who were really ambitious, even more so than, than himself at that time. Um, so, so much of it comes down to mindset, but you can't disregard the work. So Jesse was like cultivating the mindset, but was doing the work because of who he was hanging out with. So that kind of felt normal, but he didn't realize that he like kind of accidentally stumbled upon the work. Whereas Marilyn, it seems like you were more active in saying, what the heck is this thing? Where's the work? Go for it. Um, and then once Jesse got there, it was almost like, oh man, what? I'm a pro now. And then over the next like two-ish years, he fully got there to the point by the, I mean, and this is 12 years ago or more. How long have you raced pro Jesse? Long uh, time. Too long, too long. Yeah. yeah 12 yeah, yeah. sounds good. Yeah. Um, but the point is that then you, you got there mentally about two years into your pro career where you you stopped thinking about requalifying for your pro card and you had just totally turned into, I'm here to beat as many of these people as possible. And then you didn't have any questions. So, and in short, shoot really high and I don't, you don't have to beat yourself up over everything, but if, if you have high goals, just be okay with having high goals and be okay with doing what it takes and, and kind of research what it takes to do that. And, and act like the person you want to be. 
is what I would say. Yeah. And I mean, the thing I heard you say, um, kind of in reference to both Marilyn and I, is that we were like doing the work, which seems like kind of that, like you need to do enough of the right training in order to be physically ready. And then you also need to have like a pretty intense mindset to go to the race and try pretty hard, right? You kind of have to have those two components. Yeah. And, and you guys, the mindset was a little different for both of you, but Jesse, you were in a situation where you were doing the work, even though maybe you didn't realize you were. And Marilyn was actively doing the work and was pretty well certain she was. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you, you have to do that work and you're, you're going to get there. So sweet. It's, but the point is also, it's not easy for that mindset to change overnight. So don't, don't be hard on yourself. Just try to put yourself in a good position and then stick at it. Yeah. And I guess same with the work too, eh? like the work, you know, you have to have maybe a base before you can say, jump into doing, if you see someone who's training a ton, like you can't just say, Oh, I'm training nine hours, but I know Marilyn was training 35 hours. So I'm going to start training 35 hours. So you kind of got to like work your way up to that. Um, and then, and then, yeah, anyways, long time on that question. Let's move on today. We are actually going to talk about adapting to various changes in our environment and how we can respond to that. So to kick it off and talk in talking about the environment, I'm going to throw a question at my co-host that they do not know yet. And I want them to tell a story where they didn't maybe change their mindset appropriately to the environment in which they were in and maybe had a workout success or failure based on that lack of adapting. Um, while they're thinking about it, I'm going to tell a story about the, my first weekend in Tucson when I did not change anything that I wanted to do. And I moved here in August for the school year, right? Yeah. I moved here for the school year. Yeah, I, I remember this vividly. Carry on. <laughs> I, I, um, I don't think I remember it very vividly because I'm pretty sure I had like some serious brain melt. Um, but yeah, I basically like dropped off my stuff and I had a house with like a bed and a bike in it and was about to start the school year. It was like going out for training. And I remember going out for, for a run and I basically got like a mile and a half into this run and it was like, I think it was a run off the bike. Like I said, I, I got so hot. I, I don't remember much about it, except that like, I, I literally felt like my brain was melting and like, I ran straight into this circle K and was like drinking, drinking ice and Coke out of like the fountain machine, like base, like pouring it from a cup, like just into my face. And then I was like doing like, kind of like laps around the circle K and just like going back in in order to like get this run finished. And then I like slogged home and, you know, was trying to do the prescribed workout while taking breaks in a circle K. And the, the person there was just so confused as to why I was like a hundred percent dripping. Like I looked like I just came in out of the rain, but it, you know, it's 110 and um, sunny. And then basically walked home and lied on my kitchen floor for three hours, like in a giant puddle of sweat, not having any idea what just happened. 
So I probably should have changed that workout or been a little bit more prepared for the situation I was in, but I did. That's, that's, <laughs> that's an aggressive day for a, your first, your first exposure to Tucson heat. Oh my gosh. I mean, all in, just go for it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, I, um, heat's a big one, right? I mean, heat is usually the one that sneaks up on people for sure. And if we're telling funny stories, I, I I was like someone who had success in heat. That's why I was able to win Ironman Malaysia. I could, I knew to adjust, um, you know, adjust effort, adjust nutrition, adjust expectations, pace, all that, those kinds of things. And I basically, while everyone else fell over in the heat, I was able to just kind of keep going at the same pace <laughs> and cross the finish line in first. But what's where I'm going with this, the funny thing is, is you think that you would stick with that if you know that. And so I went back there a couple of years later and now I was coming back as a return, return champion of the race. And I thought, why would you change things? But of course I did. I went, well, now I'm going to race this because I'm good in heat now. <laughs> and of course I didn't even make it out of T2. I mean, I did the swim. I raced the bike completely different than I did the first time. Why, why do that? And then I got into T2 and I sat, I remember sitting down on the chair to put my run shoes on. And then I remember waking up in the med tent. That was it. Just, just gone. And I think, you know, it's funny, even when we have a lot of experience with something and we know how to execute it well, based on conditions, sometimes we forget because we get competitive or we think we're familiar with it. So I think it's important as we go through this conversation, um, with the different conditions, we're, you know, we've got two stories of heat because that's a big one, but, um, there's all kinds of different ones we're going to talk about, but man, you can forget, you know, you can do it well. And then you're like, now I'm going to do it different. It's like, why? No, it doesn't, the rules don't change. <laughs> I, I can, uh, give us a new example. <clears throat> So, um, in between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, I was, I'm, so I'm from Chicago. So I'm running in the flattest area in the country and in the world, you can put a level on the place. And I was running a hundred mile weeks. I, I think I probably averaged a little over 90 for the 12 weeks before I moved to Montana. So I was running a lot, was, was very fit for myself at that age, or I guess I was 18 and so I'm in, I moved to Montana and there's mountains everywhere. There's literally a mountain that goes up 3000 feet from, from my dorm. So there's a valley and then you walk a hundred meters and it goes straight up a mountain. And so on the second or third day I was there, um, at, you know, it's the beginning of college and everyone is asking you if you've gone up to the M, which is 700 feet of vertical gain. And it averages about 22%. And I think to myself, oh, well, I'll do a workout thinking I'll do essentially like three by a mile because it's a little under a mile. So I just sprint to the top of the M of which I've run up zero Hills in the last 18 years of my life. Cause I've never been near a Hill in my life. And then I run straight down the Hill, think nothing of it. And I do that three times in a row for a total of 2000 feet of vertical descent. And then, um, very shocked to find out that even though I only ran eight miles that day, when I was used to running 15 miles, I couldn't barely walk for the next three days because of the descent and just kind of thinking, Oh, well, I'm fit. I'm doing all these miles. You know, I can run low five minute pace for a really long time. And Nope, I just couldn't handle jogging downhill for 2000 feet and it ruined me. Um, and then I learned quickly. So that was a change. I wasn't ready for it. 
Awesome. So yeah, there, uh, there are a lot of things we can talk about with change and, and a lot of different, different physical changes that are out there. Uh, since it is, you know, springtime and in most places, things are starting to heat up a little bit. That seems like the, uh, the natural place to start. So let's talk about when it starts to get hotter, like it is now in most of the world, especially in Tucson, where we kind of jump straight from winter to summer with having 90 degree days. Now, how can people, uh, I guess either adjust their training or adjust their preparation or what they're doing while they're training in order to handle a big temperature increase or just a little bit more heat exposure throughout the day. Yeah. So when it's uh, really hot temperatures, you definitely have to approach your sessions differently, right? I mean, you head out and one of the number one things, if you start to overheat, things are going to change, right? I mean, we've got to keep the core temperature down in order to produce the same pace, produce the same kind of watts. That's why you see at things like, you know, the Olympics when they're in Asian countries or Athens or something like that, everyone warming up for high intensity stuff. They've got ice vests on, cool drinks, all that kind of thing. Because if we, if we start to overheat you even see it with swimmers, you know, having to pull off their swim caps, that kind of thing. If you start to overheat days kind of done. Right. And so the main thing, when you step out, um, into these hot conditions, we adjust our expectations of what we're going to get out of the session. We might even completely train, change the training based on the heat, but certainly the main thing is you need to make sure you approach the session in a way that we're not, we're not going to end up basically overheating from the inside out and not being able to, to execute the session. Right. And so when we look at what is it that you're trying to get done that day, how would you maybe adjust it? But perhaps there might even be and a complete adjustment in your whole training plan going into a race just because it is hot. So I would say certainly what kind of session you're doing and how would you adjust how you're going to approach it? Or possibly do we need to adjust the training altogether just to avoid overheating out there? And it has a big impact on recovery too, right? I mean, we, we can, we, we definitely want to talk about that. Like I know I can do a session, one session in the heat versus the cold. I come in from the cold and I feel okay. You know, my eyes feel fine. My, you know, my energy feels fine, all that stuff. I do the exact same session in 90 degrees plus heat. And I come in and I'm completely wiped from it for hours. So, so I think that's something that we need to talk about as well. You, you can't get away with, uh, overpacing nearly as much in the heat. Your heart rate just won't come down and your, you know, intensity across the board is going to elicit a higher heart rate. So if, if you're going out to do a tempo run, what is tempo according to blood lactate is a slower pace, right? No matter what the sport is. And, and sometimes, you know, people forget that swimming in a warmer pool does the same thing. So we talk about heat. We're often talking about being outside. And of course you can cool down in the shade. And why is Ironman Hawaii so hard? It's because it's humid and 80 degrees and humid. There's there's nowhere for your sweat to evaporate from. So we need to keep that in mind as well. If it's, if it's quite humid out, that's a problem. And you can't get away with a little bit of overpacing and then recovering. There is no recovering when it's humid. If it's a dry heat and you're in the desert, you can go overpaced a little bit, but not very much. And, and because it's dry, you're going to get more evaporation from your sweat. And of course, if you're really fit and it's not hot at all, you know, you can kind of go bananas with bad pacing and kind of still get away with it in a workout in a race. It's always going to bite you in the butt by the end of the race, but this is all to say, 
if it's warm out, you really have to watch yourself with your pacing, no matter what kind of workout it is or what kind of race. And it just becomes paramount to avoid going too hard too early. Let's, uh, let's go back to that warm pool because that is literally the worst thing in the world. <laughs> there is nothing I hate more than a hot pool. Oh my, my God. God. Um, no, but, uh, joking aside, <laughs> um, I totally agree. And I, I think if we were going to give, give some advice for people dealing, dealing with the weather getting warmer, like, especially before your body adjusts or while your body is going through some of that adjustment period, like Elliot mentioned, like your, your tempo run, that, that pace is going to have to come down, right? Cause the intensity, your heart rate is going to stay the same as like, maybe it would be before, but maybe you're running 20 seconds slower. Um, so I think on especially longer efforts, being really careful with your pacing and starting, starting slower is, is kind of one thing Elliot was saying. And then another thing is, is the, um, if you are going to have a, a hard session where you want to go really hard, right? The, the goal is like some VO two work or whatever, like whether it's a track session or intervals on the bike or intervals in a hot pool, ugh. um, where you have to get out of the pool between the reps and dump yourself with cold water. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe when it's cool out, you can get away with like whatever the session is eight by a hundred, eight by 800 on the track with a 200 meter jog. Maybe you need to do like two minutes standing there with, a cold water bottle that you're sipping on and squirting on yourself or whatever. So altering that rest so that you can still get that same quality to actually allow your heart rate to come down, even in the hot conditions. Um, I think it can be a good way to kind of one way to mitigate that heat. Elliot, do you have another way? Well, no, I was going to say if, if you're looking for the bullet point and you're trying to do a high end effort, like uh, like you said, like a VO two kind of effort, you can either do the same length of effort, or maybe shorten the effort a little bit and you're definitely going to increase the rest and make sure you get more rest. And like you went from active rest to to total rest. That's a great way to do it. And another is just take more time in between the reps. Actually, this is a conversation I've had with um, myself and with friends and, and peers as well in the heat. If you're chronically training in the heat, say you live in a place like Tucson for three, four months or Texas or something like that, and you're getting ready for races, is there risk in, and this is why I say like, you know, deciding when your race season is really important. Is there a risk in not being able to get fit enough or as fit as you possibly could be because of where you are training and, and where I'll even go further with that. Like, where's the balance of it? I've, I've definitely know, but just stick with me here for a second. Like people who they go to altitude for the benefits of altitude. However, they actually go into like oxygen chambers for their speed work, or they come down to sea level for speed work because they're not able to go fast enough to be in race condition for altitude. So if you're living somewhere really hot, like we're talking about, okay, the most important thing when it's really hot is to recognize you need to adjust your effort and your pace. Um, If you know you've got to live for four months in your primary race preparation in that those kinds of condition, is there a risk of one, getting a little bit over, cause you lose a lot of minerals, your recovery is compromised, um, maybe chronically dehydrated you're not able to hit the high notes. Is there a risk of actually not being able to be prepared for a race if you're chronically training in the heat? Um, and, and how do you combat that? I mean, you know, what's, what's, you guys gave some tips for that, but what's the combat for that? Um, so since I moved to Tucson, I've, I think I've literally never had a good September Ironman. 
I swung like 10 times and it's been a swing and a miss every time. Um, because it, like you said, it is really hard to, to get ready appropriately when you're dealing with like a massive amount of heat in Tucson. So I think, like you said, setting up an appropriate race schedule is really important. And I think the thing that you touched on there is that it's not always the training. Like you might be able to get the training done, but I just couldn't recover. So I couldn't really back up my sessions very well because I could have a one-off good session, but then it'd take me like four days of lying on the floor before I could do it again. And I think I've actually gotten a little bit more intelligent. It, it only took living here for a decade. Um, but doing things like, okay, in the summer, I don't ride more than four hours outside. So if I need to finish that off, I make sure it's on the trainer in air conditioning with fans, with 30 bottles of ice water mixed all around me. And so I can really do everything I can to like stay on top of hydration, keep my core temperature down. And, and it's like, it's a big project in order to like, make sure all that happens. But I think that it's, I mean, like the same thing you see in people that live in cold weather in the winter, you just have to move some of that indoors and you have to do some of it in, in air conditioning, in good climates so that you don't fry because it's, it is, it's impossible to like, if you're getting dehydrated every single workout, you just can't come back from that day after day after day. So finding ways to do that. And I ended up doing a fair amount of in, indoor training in the summer, especially if this stuff is long. Um, or, I mean, I guess we're lucky enough to have Mount Lemon here. So you can do some, some kind of altitude escapes, but I think really dropping down the volume and, and being really smart with the effort and really making sure you're managing all those factors is even more important. And you really, you've got to, yeah, you've got to really control all those controllables as much as you can. And, um, Elliot's going to add to that. Well, I was going to say the crux of the problem to, to answer your question, Marilyn, or I guess discuss it is that when it is that hot or that humid or the combination of heat and humidity, your options are to do less bouts of training or more recovery between those bouts, you know, and, and then you ultimately won't have enough training effect because you can't ride over four hours, but your race is going to be a five hour ride, right? You just won't be prepared for the distance. So you can either train appropriately in the heat, you know, you can do shorter sessions and you can do sessions with more time between, but at a certain point, you just won't physically be prepared for the distance. Um, and then the flip side is you try to be prepared for the distance and there's just no way to, because your body can't, it's, it's too hard. It's too hot. And, and it takes too much out of you. Um, so you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So that's where I'd say this, this also, do we want to shift this over also as well to altitude? Because I think altitude, or I don't think I know altitude and heat are very similar in terms of the demands they put on your, your system in terms of how your heart rate goes up, your core body temperature doesn't go up quite as much, but your heart rate does go up. Um, and, and that affects how you have to write workouts and how you have to execute workouts. And the same thing, all the things we said with heat, where you can't get away with going too hard early in the workout, they all apply for altitude as to how they affect you. Yeah. The one thing is I think people, um, with one of the things that I'll hear uh, some people come at you and say, well, don't you eventually adapt to the heat? And within three weeks, you adapt to the altitude. And both of those are, are true. You certainly do adapt, um, but not on the extremes. And there still is an adjustment in what you're able to produce as far as like the really hard training, I think. And um, so there, when you're writing out your training plan in both those circumstances, 
you have to take that into consideration. And everybody's a little bit different, right? I mean, altitude for some people doesn't affect them as much, but everybody is affected to some extent. And you certainly do adapt. Um, we know that after 5,000 feet, for every 1,000 feet that you go up, it's it's more, right? Like it's, it's twice as much. So, you, you know, 3,000 to 5,000, 3,000. I always say it's like up to 5,000 before you really even have to adjust anything or notice too much. Um, I know that some people from sea level to 3000 will say that they notice something, but it really is truly at 5000, you start to see the changes, then 5000 and up for every 1000 you go up, it's significantly more. I think it's like double, you might know the exact numbers, Elliot, but it's like double each time each for each it gets rough. We'll just yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, but, and, and then same with heat. Yes. People do tra heat training camps to prepare for hot races, but then there is that point where it becomes so depleting and you're not able to hit, you know, the speeds and, and the intensity that you need to be able to race well, because ultimately, ultimately to race well, eventually you got to do some fast training, right? Um, we can't just go slow all the time or we can't just have huge recovery all the time. You got to, so I like, sometimes I think that you know, we have to be careful about like how long can someone be in heat for before they have to, you know, get out of there and make those kinds of adjustments to be race ready. And same with altitude. I've, I've done a lot of altitude stuff. I've done like living up at 10, 10, 12,000 feet and coming down to 5,000 to, to train. I've certainly done like extended training camps up in Flagstaff where it's like 7,000 and above. Um, so I think, you know, there's, it depends also the type of event that you're that you're getting ready for. I think Ironman athletes can train at altitude for a long time. And the shift, if you get a bump from altitude, you're probably going to benefit more from that than doing more speed work just because of the nature of the event, because it's such a long event where short course athletes, it's probably a little bit of a decision made on each athlete. Like if you've got to grow really, really fast for a short course athlete. So if you're having to sacrifice a lot of speed work in order to be at altitude and not getting that much of a gain from the altitude, you, you might look at like that. Maybe that's not the best decision as well as for females, right? Altitude and, and iron can be a real issue. So you definitely want to make sure. And some males too, I've seen as well, making sure that you're getting blood work before blood work during making sure that, um, you know, it's worth you, all your irons up and, and that you're seeing a change in change in your hematocrit for going to altitude. If you're a responder or non-responder, that kind of thing. So is it even worth, worth going? Um, I don't know what you guys yeah, so I mean, some, I, go for it, Jesse. I was going to say some of the things that you were talking about, there's like, if you have a choice, right. But yeah. let's, let's say a lot of people that, that don't have a choice, they just happen to live in Flagstaff. And, um, yeah. So what are, I guess, what are some changes they could make living at altitude? Like how do they, how do they still prepare for a race when they're dealing with that day in and day out? The, I think you have to look at no matter where you are, you have to look at what's the natural advantage of your location and what's the natural disadvantage. And the cool thing about our sport is like, you know, being at high altitude or being at low altitude or like where I lived for years at 3,500 feet, kind of right in the middle, every place has its advantages and disadvantages. And you just need to recognize when you're at altitude or when it's really hot, your disadvantage is you can't just do boatloads of work, you know, at that high intensity without, big enough gaps. So it, it gets to be a real issue. As Marilyn said, if you're going to race short course, you have to make sure you're doing a frequency, um, that's relatively high 
you know, that might only be twice a week, but, um, where you're, where you're getting your turnover and you're maintaining your, your efficiency of form, whether it's the swim or the bike and the run, and you're making sure you have enough rest between those reps. And conversely, if you're at sea level, you often have to end up doing more tempo work or, or longer, long rides or longer, long runs. Cause you're not quite getting quite as much out of those when you're at, you know, when you're at that perfect condition. Uh, like that perfect temperature. If you're always working out and it's 60 degrees and sea level, you need to get in more miles to really have that aerobic base. So let's, um, I don't know if you guys are happy to talk about this. Uh, what, when you're saying that the one thing that popped in my head was let's talk about wind. Um, oh yeah. I love, the, I love the word breezy because we have this whole joke between us about like, what's the difference between breezy and windy? Right. I mean, where is that line? And then we, we actually, through a group of us friends, we found the defining, what was the defining? Non- was it eight, 18 miles an hour? Something and then like it, it 16? was like definitely different from, I'm like, if the, is the, the, the big flag is pinned, it's windy. That's windy. I don't care what the weatherman says. <laughs> yeah. But you know, let's talk about that because you, you even just experienced that recently in Miami, Jesse, where, you know, you're like, wow, I had to make uh, adjustments to my race execution based on, I had a massive tailwind versus a massive headwind. And I think a lot of people make mistakes. The most common mistake I've seen people make in wind is chasing Watts in a tailwind actually. <laughs> but, um, so I, I think, you know, wind can, can really change a session for somebody, but it can really, really change somebody's race. That's for sure. Yeah. I think that the, the two, I, the two things that I, I know I do myself and I've seen other people do is, is that's one is like trying to go even faster in a tailwind when you're getting like, you know, diminishing returns there. And then the flip side, like shifting the wrong way in a headwind being like, Oh, this wind is strong. I can keep it in the same gear. I can be even stronger. All of a sudden I'm pushing like a cadence of 70 because I'm like, trying to grind it out against the headwind and like maybe I'm hitting the power, but like at what cost. And so, yeah, I think that the whole battling the headwind and like trying to lean into it instead of being like, okay, like I need to keep my cadence the same. I need to spin and I need to just keep an eye on my Watts and not worry about speed and not try and like grit my teeth and go into caveman mode against this headwind. Uh, Cause that's, that's what, that's what Elliot does. That's why he's waving at me. That's what a lot of people do in the headwind. And, and, and yeah, so I think really staying in the right headspace in order to like ride your bike appropriately in wind is, uh, is really important. I think we haven't ridden together recently enough. You've forgotten the wind doesn't touch me. Um, (laughs) but (laughs) it's right around you. It's because I'm so little close enough. Yeah. Um, I think, well, so you, you made a valid point in that you don't need to go you can't just fight the wind and wind up and win all day. You know, it's just not going to happen. However, wind is like a minor hill, right? Cause when you, if you know you're about to have a giant headwind and, and a giant tailwind, you still have to pedal into the, with the tailwind. It's not a, da- it's not a downhill where you can just coast and you'll fly, but there does, it is like optimal pacing is going to require a little bit above optimal race pace into the headwind. And then as Marilyn said, like you, you don't want to chase Watts when you have that tailwind. 
So if you're doing a course where it's a pure headwind, pure tailwind, you need to keep in mind that it's okay to go a little harder into the headwind, but not you, you kind of have to be aware you can't go too much harder. So you kind of have to find that spot. That's like, you know, 2% or 3% too hard, as long as you're staying in your own rhythm, Jesse, like you said, you know, you don't want to get bogged down and you want to be as comfortable as you can that little bit harder. And then when you hit the tailwind, you can relax sometimes even more than a couple percent. Um, and then just kind of keep your speed up as best you can. And then once you notice, you know, maybe you're not going quite as fast for your reduced power, um, you know, and, and, or maybe it becomes a crosswind, then you kind of settle back into your normal race pace. Does that sound about right to you guys and how you would optimally pace a, a windy day? Oh, for sure. And I think, I mean, I'm always about good, good technique and getting the most speed out of your bike as possible. So with the least amount of effort so that you can run fast. So in wind, I always, I always tell people, don't be, be afraid to shift around based on asking yourself. The question is, is my bike moving fast, right? So if you're in a tailwind and your bike is going really, really fast, this might be the time that you get your heart rate down, you get down some more fluids, you get down some more nutrition. Um, you know, yeah, you might have it, you know, in a gear where you are still working and you're making, taking advantage of that speed, but you're like, wow, my bike's moving pretty fast. So I can pay attention to some other things right now in the headwind when it's really hard. Like you said, Jesse, if you're just grinding along and your bike's going slower and slower, that might not be the optimal cadence. Yeah. You might be working really hard, but what are you getting out of it? You're just getting tired. Right. (laughs) Always ask yourself, is my bike still moving fast and don't be afraid to shift around in your position or your cadence or what it is that you're doing to make sure that you're still going quickly, um, on your bike. You know, that's, that's the big, that's the big thing with wind and, and the crosswinds, you know, especially for smaller athletes, but, but anybody really, the big thing is in those crosswinds that hit you from cutouts, you know, or, or just suddenly from behind trees or that kind of thing. I always try and explain to my athletes, imagine if someone is going to be, you see them, they're running at you and you know, they're going to hit you. You wouldn't stand bolt upright and just wait for them to plow into you because you would probably fall over. What you do, if you see someone running at you and you know, they're going to nail you, you get low in an athletic position and get ready to brace yourself. So it's a little bit like that with the wind. If you're coming along and you know, you can see the trees and you can see the flags and you can see there's a big rock wall that's protecting you, but you know that is gonna be gone and that wind's gonna hit you full blast, get low and lean into it before it hits you. And then you're gonna be able to stay steady in the same rhythm and, and be safe. If you end up coming bolt upright, and, and relax the pressure that wind's going to hit you. It's probably going to move you across the road, especially for the smaller athletes. So that's a you know good way to visually get yourself ready for those kinds of conditions. That is great advice for if someone's going to tackle you, punch you, or if you're riding <laughs> your bike in the wind. Get low. Get low. <laughs> I mean, you, right. you described it perfectly. I was like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what you do. Um, but <laughs> I've never had that conversation. I gotta get low. <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah, yeah, that's that's perfect. That's very good advice. Um, and I, I think that's maybe not intuitive for a lot of people who end up in endurance sports, right? And and you really are trying to um, hide from the wind. And I, I know I, I've personally always never really minded the wind. And, and maybe it's just because I spent so much time with people plowing into me as a sport um, that I kind of got used to avoiding as much as I can. But um, that's a very good point. So hills, 
our changes in the course, do, do we want to get into that or should we get straight into um, air pollution, pollen, et cetera? Well, I think hills are worth just a brief touch on. What I'm most interested, actually, I have a question for you guys, um, is, you know, now the newest technology is power on the run. And people are using, I know, Jesse, you've got quite a bit of experience with the power meters on the run. Um, and so executing, we use it on the bike, right? I mean, power, same kind of thing as we were just talking about in the wind different strategies of do we power up the hills and increase power on the bike or the run? Do we, you know, decrease it or do we go after the same power on the ride? I certainly uh, over the years heard people talk about the Ironman Canada course where they're like, oh, I eased off on all of the rollers and then I kept the same power. Oh, as I crested the hill and I went on the downhill. Other people say I attacked the rollers and went way up and over, just like you were talking about the wind, Elliot. But I think Okay, we already have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and data on, on, on that with, with bikes, but I want to just briefly touch on because um, it's, it's much newer is how are you, how are you handling hills and power on the run and, and, and like where would your adjustments be with that just on based on that information. Yeah, it's kind of funny because people always like talk about hills and, and they're like, yeah, like, you know, the hills are coming. So you're kind of like excited about it or like geared up for it. So hills are kind of like this, this thing you're like ready for. Whereas people are, talk about the wind is like this crazy thing that came out of nowhere. Like all of a sudden I was riding and the wind hit me, but like, oh, but I'm like going to go around my bike up this hill and I'm like geared up. I'm ready for it. I know what I'm going to do. And like you guys are saying, the, the approach is, is somewhat similar. Um, but to talk about like, I guess, run power specifically, I think the, the interesting thing is it's not as straightforward as like people think it is with like bike power, because the, the, the mechanical advantage you get from the bike isn't there when you're running. So like to actually run uphill and produce the same amount of power is harder. Um, and then, yeah, like same with running downhill. So it's, it's not this straight thing where like, okay, when you're riding with power, you should probably increase it that two or 3% to kind of go up the hill. Like the, having that same mindset when you're running up, up and down a hill is, um, it doesn't work quite as, as <coughs> smoothly. Um, so I think, I think, I think it's still better to kind of keep an eye on other metrics when you're, when you're running on a hilly course, like looking at heart rate thinking about how you're breathing then would be to stare at, at just your run power. Do you, do you guys ever just try to use the, cl the cue, um, whether it's riding or running essentially or swimming in a current, we didn't bring that one up, but, um, where, where you can go a little bit harder over that hill, but you always have to keep in mind that the hill doesn't end until 30 seconds into the downhill. And so you have to be able to carry your momentum to the top of the hill, over the top, and, and, and then into the downhill. And if there is no downhill, then well into the flat section after that hill's over. And maybe that's not a specific power, but just more the mindset of like, oh, if I'm going to go a little harder up this, that's fine. But I can't be pushing myself so hard where I just can't keep rolling with the pace and really keep my rhythm no matter what the terrain does after the top of the hill. Yeah. You don't want to walk it across the top of the hill. You kind of lose, lose the whole point of going harder leading up to it. Right. Um, 
I think I, one of the most common mistakes I see with triathletes uh, as they learn to ride, ride hills in particular well is being afraid to shift gears and move around on the bike a bit. You know, uh, I've even seen triathletes climb in their aero bars when it made absolutely no sense. Their bike wasn't, again, is your bike moving fast? Um, so, you know, don't be afraid to really use your gear, stand, sit. Um, if it makes sense to be in your aero bars because your speed's still high, great, be down there. If it's not, don't be afraid to sit up and get more speed out of your bike and sit up and get back behind the pedal stroke and go fast. And then there's a point where you need to shift and stand for five or six pedal strokes to keep the keep the bike moving fast. Like all of, like you're saying, cresting the top of a hill or a roller, but you know, maybe, maybe that means lifting your cadence and changing gears to get up over that roller quickly. And then, and then shift to two bigger gears as you crest it and, and power over the top. So really being comfortable with that kind of stuff is, is important on the hills on the bike. I think it's similar on the run, right? I mean, if you're the type of person that is going to get, um, maybe cumulatively pretty tired from running uphill and you're on a rolling course, you might really control your effort and get almost kind of compact and control your heart rate up the hills. But as soon as you crest that top of that hill, if you get really efficient and good at running downhill, you can run really fast downhill and, and not have it beat your quads up. You find a really good rhythm, you get really good leg speed. And that is a technique and a practice, something you can practice and become good at. There's, there's people out there who, they're just so fast at running downhill that they win races just simply because of that. And I think, you know, with St. George coming up, the people who can do that, if they, if you are no longer running fast for the effort uphill, so your heart rate is really, really high and your effort is very high, but you're not going any faster than a power walk, then you might be better off to power walk very briskly and then really boogie downhill. So I've seen people make the mistake of going a little bit too hard to crest that hill, then their heart rate's jacked, they can't quite recover. And then they don't know how to run downhill efficiently and quickly, and they actually lose time that way. So now they're a little bit too gassed, they burn through too many calories, and they're going slower than they could on the up on the downhill. So you can change that over in terms of getting the most out of yourself with with those hills, just just practicing that and knowing that and those are all bike and run. Those are technique, technique things. Yeah, that's that's kind of exactly what I was trying to allude to with the running power, but I, I think that you just <laughs> said it much better. And that the fact is that you don't like, you need to keep running hard on both sides of the hill, right? So like you can't run that hard on the uphill because you don't get free speed on the downhill as well as you do when you're riding. So almost like, almost like in biking, it's okay to go a little harder on the uphill and running. You almost want to kind of keep the effort the same, right? You want to run like, you might be slowing down a little bit, but your effort's staying the same. And then once you're running downhill, your speed's going to go way up. And hopefully the effort is staying about the same for that speed that you're running. So we talked about heat. We talked about hills. We talked about wind. Something we don't get very often in Tucson is the cold. Ooh, but I'm from Canada. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and I, I know that most places are heating up right now, but there are definitely still some some cold snaps that, that could roll through. Um, and one thing I remember about being in, being in Colorado and, and doing some rides in the winter is just showing up home and like being absolutely famished from riding in the cold. Yeah. Oh my God. Some of the most epic bonks I've ever had were from not adjusting the amount of calories I needed out in a cold 
windy ride, actually in New Zealand. Man, it can be so bitterly cold there and with the wind and the rain and and just not eating enough. And you come, you know, you think, oh, I can still get away with what I was fueling with in a hundred degrees in Australia or Tucson. And you come in, you're just, yeah, you're seeing stars. That's the that's probably the most common mistake I see with people with if we're talking about um one of the major things to adjust and note in cold, there's a lot of things we'll touch on them, but the big one is especially cold racing, boy, you got to really increase your calories and maybe even what you're eating, right? We didn't even talk about um, that with nutrition and the heat. That's a big, that's probably a whole nother podcast, but definitely need to increase calories. Yeah. I, I think being in the cold, it's, it's a couple of things. One, it's better to be a little too warm when it's cold out. It's better to have one piece of clothing too many than one piece too few, precisely for what Marilyn said. Your body has to stay warm to stay alive. And if, if you're cold and you're like, you know, your body's going to put a lot of energy into staying warm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really hard for your body to stay warm, right? That takes a ton of energy, especially when it's cold out. Yeah. And we're obviously we're talking about colder temperatures and everything's amplified on the bike when you factor in wind chill, et cetera. So if, if you're riding just above freezing on the bicycle, it's, it gets cold real fast. The other thing is you have to account for like, if you're running in the cold and you have these clothes on to stay warm, great. You're keeping your body healthy, but also just factually you're carrying more weight and you're moving with more clothing on. And that alone requires more energy. So it's Stay like running. <laughs> yeah. The very thing that's keeping you warm so you can execute. You're like, Oh great. I'm staying warm. So my body's not wasting energy. And it's like, well, gotcha because all these clothes also cost more energy. So like, you know, you're damned. If you do, you're damned. If you don't just eat more food is the moral of the story and stay warm. And I, I think those things you just always have to keep in mind. And it's like, it's never going to work out to just be a little too cold. You know, like people get away with it, but when you look at the day to day, when you're in a cold climate, just training hard in a cold climate every day, you can't get cold on any sort of regular basis because in the exact same way, Jesse ended up on the floor, you know, dying of heat exposure, as he was saying at the start of this pod, other people end up in the shower crying while their toes are getting rewarmed for three hours afterwards. And then it's the same thing. It takes them a couple of days to recover. So just being prepared for either one of those situations is the best option. Yeah. I had a, I had an athlete who was in the pro female race. Um, and I, it was in Whistler the year. It was like really, really cold. The 50 and, degree and yeah, and jumping. Every, everybody was like, you know, of was course, 18? I can't Maybe. remember the year. I'm not good with dates, but they, um, yeah. it was absolutely freezing. And, and, you know, everyone's worried about speed and transitions when you're racing professionally. And, and I said to her, I said, Throw on a jacket and throw on gloves. It takes you a minute or two more. Doesn't matter because everyone else is going to be so cold. They're not going to make it for, you know, they're going to be dropping like flies within two hours of the ride because they're going to be frozen. They can't get their water bottles out. They can't get their hands on their nutrition. Um, take the extra minute in, in transition to two minutes, whatever, to put on a jacket and some gloves so that you can actually handle your bike and you can handle your nutrition. You can keep, you know, keep your effort up because when you're frozen, it's very hard to hit effort when you're frozen. I mean, your ability to actually go fast, <laughs> Write that down. like you're just like, Nope, the body is just going slowly. Um, so that's, that's definitely, and then just, this is just like a little tip. I, I coach a bunch of Swedish guys and, um, it's real cold in Sweden. Um, 
and, and Norway as well. Um, I have two athletes in Norway and they, they are the, they're, they're just Vikings over there. I mean, number one, they're just different breed of athletes than, than anywhere, but they train in conditions, just snow and cold. And they, um, they always say, make sure that all the little bits, like your ankles, you know, we go out in the run, we got these like running tights on, and then we got these little running socks and we got the, our runners. And then there's this, like this little gap where your ankles are exposed. And then people get Achilles and ankle injuries in the winter. And they don't realize it's just because they're, they're, you know, frozen right there. And, and it's causing a lot of stress on their ligaments and tendons. And they will actually take big woolly socks and cut the foot off and they'll have their normal socks. And then almost like those old school eighties leg warmers and keep their ankles and their calves warm so that they don't blow out their calves and ankles in the cold and keep that area warm. So little things like that, actually, they make a big difference. Um, in the cold. Don't leave exposed skin. And, and I'm sure they're also very familiar with Vaseline. Like when you're talking about that race in Canada, if, if you are trying to race like Vaseline works as a great base layer, if it's wet and cold and it's windy, um, as well as taking the time to put on the jacket, you know, sure. You want your jacket to be aerodynamic, but if your option is a little bit of a, a baggy jacket, but you finish the race or you end up in an ambulance cause you're frozen. It's like, guess what? The jacket's the bit better option. <laughs> So it's, it's worth it. And it's not actually slowing you down. It's speeding you up because it's keeping you warm. Awesome. So yeah, dress for the cold and eat more food. <laughs> we should have said that at the top. <laughs> one quick, one thing to add, I would just want to um, ask you your opinions is uh, there's certain races, especially like Arizona where the morning's really cold and the water's really cold but later in the day on the run, it's, it's quite hot. And, and in particular, my thoughts are around cold water swims um, and how much, how, how to prepare for that. And, and what would you do? Like we talked about in the hot water swims, like if you're in a hot pool or you're in a hot race with that, obviously you're gonna wanna go pace a little bit slower, all of these things to not overheat. But what about really cold water swims or having to practice practice. I mean, I've got an athlete in Bermuda and her pool is like 70 degrees. Most of the time it's absolutely freezing. So, um, you know, you might have to adjust things based on that. I mean, you've done Arizona a bunch of times, Jesse, you know, how cold that water can be. Yeah. I think it's, it's really important to, to prepare for that before the race, as in like immerse yourself in some cold water. And I mean, it's almost like hitting a sauna before a hot race, like getting your body a little bit used to that. Um, and if you, if you can do it, like if you can find access to a cold pool or a cold, a cold Lake, I think really getting in and just like, you know, getting yourself a little bit more accustomed to that is, is really beneficial. But if you can't even just like putting a few ice cubes in the tub and, and, and sitting in cold water, like it, it sounds a little bit silly, but I think that really just like getting your body okay with being in the cold water is, is a really big step. Cause I, a lot of people kind of freak out in cold water. Um, and you just feel super uncomfortable, but if you've done it a few times, it's, it, you know, it's like, it's exactly like the sauna where it doesn't take much, you know, like two weeks before, um, three times a week, take, take a cold bath and, and you'll feel much better when you get in the cold water. I hear a lot of people say like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not good in the cold. And like, I always swim poorly in cold water, but then you say, well, like what prep did you do in order to not be bad in the cold water? And there seems to be kind of a disconnect there. So, yeah, I think you can always like 
make sure you have a slightly thicker wetsuit, maybe wear a neoprene cap, keep yourself pretty warm going into the water. Earplugs. Yeah, you can use earplugs. You can do, definitely use, do some things like that. But I think before the race, it's really important to, to have some exposure to that so that so that you are, your body is accustomed to that, that feeling of, of the cold water. And just so we're clear, like what you're basically doing is you're getting comfortable in an, in an uncomfortable situation. And if you're comfortable enough, you're going to breathe normally. And if you breathe normally, you're going to have better blood flow and oxygen flow. And if you have better blood flow and oxygen flow, you will be warmer. So it's like, that's the loop that you're going through. And it's like, oh, me being used to this, I'm not magically like developing a resistance to frostbite. No, frostbite still exists, but you are managing a way to stay calm in an uncalm situation. And then everything you just said, make sure you have a good wetsuit, make sure you have a neoprene cap, but maybe a double cap if you need to. And if you, if, and then the biggest one, I think we haven't said it, but pee in your wetsuit. So <laughs> And I think that earplugs really help. I mean, because if cold water hits, yeah, you, that's a very good point. Yeah, get, that's when people get really dizzy out of the cold water. So that's just like a a little trick of the trade as well. Yeah, if if you're that's a great point. Make sure you have the earplugs to to stay warm. So th those are kind of your baseline, and and then once you're out of the water, hopefully you know you'll you'll warm up pretty quick. But if not, and you do need more clothes, put on the clothes in T one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a tough one about Arizona though, because it. It does get so warm. You just kind of think about what it's going to be like at the end of the race and, and enjoy the cold while it lasts. I think St. George could be a little like that too for everyone getting ready for that. You know, I mean, that water in St. George, all the things we've talked about are in, in, if we're talking about races coming up and you've listened to our previous podcast where we saw talk about preparation for races, St. George can be windy. <laughs> it can definitely be really cold in the morning and cold water. Uh, there's plenty of hills. There's definitely changes in road surface. And, um, yeah, I think it could be pretty hot on the run at this time of year. So I thought you were describing St. George when you were saying it, I was yeah. like, oh yeah, Arizona fits the yeah, bill too. Though. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, you know, if you, if you're getting, if you haven't raced in a year and you've listened to our previous podcasts and we've given some tips on how to get ready for it, but you know, all these little tips that we talk about today, think about the courses that you've got coming up. Um, and, and we say St. George, cause it's the first one on the calendar over here. That's going to be a big one and it's pretty soon. So hopefully these help that. Yeah, there are obviously a ton more factors that we, we couldn't cover in the amount of time we have, but, um, but thank you guys for running through the list, especially since they all do apply to, uh, upcoming races. Yeah, of course. You know, if people want to um, type in some questions for more in-depth information on each one of these topics, obviously each one of these that we touched on, we could do an entire podcast. Heat itself could be an entire podcast. Altitude itself could be an entire podcast. So if people have questions on these topics, uh, please please type them into us and, and we'd be happy to, to get a little bit more in-depth on, on each one of these. Yeah. And so where, where can they reach you, Marilyn? Um, well, everything's always on my site. So mcc.coach, you can find all my uh, social media handles as well as my contact there. So that's the easiest one to remember. Awesome. What about you, Elliot? Elliot Bassett and uh, his Instagram and Twitter, et cetera. And then mtnendurance.com. So mountain endurance. Awesome. And Jesse? 
Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Top Step Training uh, on Instagram, and um, it's my website, and Mr. Jesse V on Instagram, or you know, on the Facebooks and all that jazz at Jesse Vondercheck. Um, so yeah, please reach out to us if you have any questions about anything, and if you do like the podcast, tell a friend. And Thank we you are. Guys. Oh, I just wanted to say we we have a list of everyone's questions, and we're gonna try to keep knocking them off one by one. So yeah, keep keep throwing them out there. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks.